You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to All Creatures Podcast. I'm Angie, and today I'll be talking about the Sumatran rhino. It's also known as the hairy rhinoceros or the Asian two-horned rhinoceros. And I'm really, really ecstatic to have back a very special guest, Dr. Barney Long from the Global Wildlife Conservation, where he is the director of species conservation. And my dear friend Barney previously joined me some episodes back to talk about the saula, uh, the Asian, the mysterious Asian unicorn, and we had a great conversation about that. And today we're shifting gears and we're going to talk about the Sumatran rhino, which is critically endangered. And Dr. Long and several, several of his collaborators are working really, really hard to save this amazing and unique critter from extinction. So you're going to want to stick with us today. We'll be talking a lot more about uh, World Rhino Day, and some other really exciting and hopeful events that are coming up. So, uh, Dr. Long, I'm really excited to have you back. You agreed. I obviously didn't scare you the way the first time we chatted, and you agreed graciously to come back on and talk about a species that's near and dear to your heart that you've worked with extensively over your amazing career. So thank you for being here today. Oh, thank you for having me, and thank you for having me back. Well, I mean, you're actually my first repeat customer, so <laughs> I'm very, very happy. that. Uh, and, and there's even more animals that you're an expert on, so if I, uh, if I don't totally um, do a bad job, maybe you'll agree to come back again sometime. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that in an hour or so. I was going to say, we'll see, we'll see how it goes. We'll definitely take it one interview at a time. But no, no, I really, uh, really appreciate you being here, and uh, we're going to have a really fun interview today, and we're going to learn a lot about this hairy little rhino to get other people excited in its conservation and to learn more about uh, the conservation efforts that are moving forward. So with that being said, for our listeners that unfortunately haven't listened to the Saula interview, and if they haven't, I highly recommend it. Uh, it's an amazing interview for a lot of people have never heard of this Asian hoofstock unicorn looking animal that lives in Vietnam and Laos. And I also, throughout the interview, although I'd heard about it, I, I know, knew very, very little of it. In fact, I didn't even know how to pronounce the name. I think I called it the Sayola through 80% of the interview before I finally asked Barney if I was pronouncing it correctly. And he politely told me I couldn't be pronouncing it more incorrectly. <laughs> So I learned to pronounce it the Saula. And is that better, Barney? That's perfect, yes. Yay! I was really, really at practice. I mean, I usually don't practice for these interviews or for the podcast, but I practice that one a lot to make sure that I'm passing. As an educator, I want to pass along the right information, right? So anyhow, for, the, um, for those of you that weren't haven't listened to that interview yet, please check it out. But in the meantime... Barney, I would love if you could give the listeners uh, just a little background about yourself and where you work now. Sure. Um, so I'm the Senior Director for Species Conservation at Global Wildlife. Um, that basically means that I support our partners uh, around the world um, on the conservation of critically endangered species. Um, we very much focus on species that are little known and underserved by the, the wider conservation community, uh, which means we do a lot of work specifically on species um, that are difficult to pronounce or people have never heard of. Um, uh, and so that uh, brings its own challenges, but also its its own rewards. It's it's uh, a fantastic opportunity to work with fantastic conservationists around the world, which aren't really being supported by by others in the conservation community. Um, so it's it's very rewarding from that point of view. Um, my background is has been species conservation uh, pretty much since the start of my career. Uh, although I've done a lot of of work also on on landscape scale conservation initiatives. Um, my focus has been in Asia, 
Um, my, and I was based in Asia for, for about a decade. Um, but I'm now based uh, in the US and support uh, projects across the world, um, Asia, Africa, Latin America and, and elsewhere. Awesome. And so how did you have you always been an animal fan or how did you decide that you wanted to to move to Asia and work with species conservation? As long as I can remember, I wanted to work in the rainforest and I really couldn't tell you where that desire came from. Okay. Uh, I grew up in, in an inner city and my parents are not particular am, animal lovers. Uh -huh. um, so I don't know where it came from, but it's just something I've, I've always been interested in. Um, uh, and not specifically any region or, or species. Um, when I was 16, I decided that I really should probably visit a rainforest if I wanted to work in them and, and go to university to study about them. Um, so I spent, I don't know, about 18 months writing off to places. This was pre-email. Um, and I eventually got offered a volunteer position, um, with a primate project in Sumatra. Mm -hmm. Um, so ended up in, in Sumatra, uh, between school and university. Um, and then from there basically got invited back, um, by that project. So I went to Sumatra every summer during university, cool. um, and, uh, for a few months after university as well. Um, and therefore just kind of got to know Asia and the, the conservation community in Asia and therefore, uh, kind of stayed in, in that region just because it's where the contacts are and who you know, etc. Sure, sure. Yeah. So from Indonesia, I went over to, to Vietnam and worked in, in Vietnam and, and Cambodia, uh, and a little bit in Laos as well. Um, and that's where all the, the work on the salad took place. Um, and, uh, once I left, Asia, I moved to, to WF, uh, in the United States and, uh, was running their Asian species program for a while. So started working back, working on the Sumatran rhino then, uh, and have been, uh, getting more and more deeply involved in, in the Sumatran rhino since, since moving to the U S. Wonderful. Well, we're definitely glad to have you here in the U S and it sounds like a, and it sounds like you've had some really amazing experiences in the jungle throughout your career and so obviously the jungle didn't scare you away. You actually really liked it, it seems like. Oh, I adored it. It's um, the most uncomfortable place in the world, but it's so incredible um, that I love every second of it, even when you're feeling uh, like you're wet. in the middle of nowhere, you're by yourself, you're wet, you're cold, you're covered in leeches and mosquitoes. Um, still enjoy it. I don't know why. <laughs> well, I, well, you know, I've, I've traveled a lot, did a lot of backpacking and... Uh, yeah, some interesting stories, but I always thought, I think it's a bit, for me personally, I always wanted to learn to become comfortable in an uncomfortable setting. I feel if you can do that, then it's just a good skill set to have and you can start to appreciate the beauty and, and look beyond some of the, the more just, uh, you can look, you know, see the, the, the forest through the trees or whatever the nail, I'm horrible at analogies, but. Yeah. So, but yes, now leeches, I think, I, I think I would probably, that's where I would pull out. I'd probably pull out with the leech. I've had leeches on me um, as a child and they weren't that bad, but I don't know if I, I put myself in that situation as a kid. I don't know if I would do that again as adult. So kudos to you. You definitely have already been one of my conservation heroes and hearing that and visualizing that makes you uh, even more of a hero in my eyes. So I, we, I'm sure uh, you probably don't hear it every day, but I know the animals and definitely a lot of people appreciate um, your treks through the jungles that have now led you here uh, to be, like you said, to be focusing back again on the Sumatran rhino, which is just an incredible rhino. It's one of five species of rhinos. I'm sure most listeners, if you've turned on the TV or anything or on your smartphone, uh, you, ha you have to know about rhinos and the poaching crisis that's going on and but most people think of african rhinos right the, and then people may not even know uh that there's two species in africa the black rhino and the white rhino but there's these these is really unique smaller rhino hairy rhino species the sumatran species that most people probably aren't as familiar with so would you mind giving the listeners just basically a brief description and background on a Sumatran rhino and, and how Asian rhinos in general are different than African rhinos. 
sure. So there's there's three species of rhino in Asia: the the greater and the lesser one-horned, um, also known as the Indian and, and Javan, um, and they're very closely related, um, very heavily armoured with their their muscle, their skin folds, and their um, plates in their skin, etc. They they look very similar. Yeah, they kind of look like dinosaurs or something. The skin folds. If people haven't seen them, we'll put tons of pictures on the show notes. But they're like plates of folds of skin. It's just really incredible. Yeah, they look like walking tanks, um, kind of out of a cartoon <laughs> of um, or something. Um, they're they're really impressive. Um, uh, and, and interestingly, the the Indian rhino is is a rhino of the grasslands of the the Terai on the India Nepal Bhutan border. Um, whereas the Javan rhino is is a dense forest species uh, of Southeast Asia. Um, and the Javan rhino used to be found all the way from, from northeast India all the way down to, to Java and Indonesia, um, and which is a huge distribution. Uh, they are now located in a single site in Java. Um, so from one of so such a huge range distribution uh, down to a single site, um, the last Javan rhino on the mainland um, was recorded as being poached in 2010. Um, and so now they're literally just found in this one site in Java. Uh, and they're down to the official count is 68 in a single site. Um, so absolutely critically endangered. Um, and on a, a scale of threat and vulnerability, um, which uh, is so completely different to what's happening in Africa, mm-hmm. um, where obviously there is a poaching crisis and, and that needs to be addressed. Um but we have over 20,000 white rhinos and over five and a half thousand black rhinos. Um, and when you look at Javans, we're looking at a single site with 68 animals in. Um, so you take that and then you look at the other Indonesian species of rhino, which is the Sumatran. Um, this is completely different to all the other rhino species. It's actually more closely related to the extinct woolly rhinos than any of the extinct rhinos. Um, it's smaller, it's, uh, hairy, um, it lives in dense rainforests up in the mountains, um, and just acts and, uh, pretty much everything about it is, is different to the other rhinos. Uh, it's its own genus. Um, and like I say, it's, it's more closely related to all the extinct woolies than, than any of the extinct current, currently living rhino species. Um, this species, there might be a few more Sumatran rhinos than Javan. We think there's probably less than 80, so it's, it's pretty similar in number. Um, but instead of being found in one site like the Javans, uh, they're currently found in 10 subpopulations. Um, and two subpopulations are, have relatively, (laughs) relatively good numbers, um, all the others are found in very small isolated fragments of kind of between one and seven individuals wandering around. Um, so they just have a set of threats that are completely unique amongst the rhinos as well. Um, just like all the other rhinos, they are targeted by poachers. Um, any rhino with a horn obviously is targeted. Um, but they're so hard to find and in such remote places and at such low numbers, um, that they're also very hard to find um, from a poaching point of view. Um, so certainly over the last probably 2,000 years, their, their distribution and their numbers have decreased because of poaching and also probably habitat loss. Um, but in the last 50 years, um, the threats really have shifted. Um, and again, yes, poaching probably still happens, but habitat loss is not really an issue for them anymore. By far the biggest issue facing them is just their small population. Um, they are in small isolated pockets, probably not meeting each other to breed. Um, if they are meeting each other, then there's a question of the relatedness between the individuals. Um, so we're in a situation now where pretty much none of these 10 populations that we know of are, are viable. And even if they don't disappear in the next five years, because Sumatran rhinos live about 35 plus years, um, so they might not disappear from the planet in the next five years. But if we don't bring them together and actually get them breeding, 
then we'll probably lose the opportunity to actually have a next generation of Sumatran rhinos. It's really incredible what's happening there. And with the habitat uh, or population habitat destruction, but then also the um, population being fragmented. I don't know if it was you or maybe my podcast partner, Chris, somebody once described it as like in a meeting. I think it was maybe you that you had everybody in the corners of the room stand up like four people each corner of the room stand up and you're like, imagine if this is the only partners you could possibly have. And then, Oh look, three of them are your sisters. (laughs) So then what do you do? Right. I mean, so that's where these isolated populations, there's just no way that they can survive unless they are somehow brought together. Right. Am I, is that about the right way to look at it? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it just, if you just look at the, the law of probabilities, if you've got seven animals in the same site, um, probably quite a few of them are going to be closely related to each other. Um, there might be a skewed sex ratio. Um, there might be one sure. or two animals that are too old to breed or too young to breed. Um, you might have a couple of animals that just don't like each other and they're not compatible. So you take all of those probabilities and a group of seven animals just is not viable. Um, you're very unlikely to get, um, births out of that group. And even if you get one or two, then in the next generation, the situation just becomes even more acute until eventually there's none left. Um, and that's what we're facing now with, and with Sumatran rhinos. Now, you mentioned that they're hairy, or I've mentioned it a little bit as well. And it, I'll put some uh, pictures on the show notes as well and give you some listeners some great websites to check out uh, the uniqueness of the Sumatran rhino. But what is the purpose of this hair? I have no idea. <laughs> no one's ever asked me that before. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Did I, did I stump? Did I stump Dr. Long? Just kidding. I I, uh, I don't know the answer as well. I uh, I mean, with woolly rhinos, they were in cold weather. Um, so I'm assuming that makes sense. But in Sumatra, it's, it's it's a very tropical jungle forest, right? Yeah. And, and to be honest, when they're out in the wild, traipsing through the forest, um, they still have hair covering their body, but it's, it's very sparse and it gets rubbed down. Okay. So, you know, the hair sure. is like an inch long uh, and uh-huh. not dense. So if you were to see a Sumatran rhino in the forest, you wouldn't necessarily know it was hairy unless you got up close to it. Now, in captivity oh, okay. uh, and the babies, when they're born, then they do have long, shaggy hair. Um, but that's not okay. what they look like when they're out in the forest. So, um, mm, so maybe it's just... It's probably just a... Their- yeah, it's probably just a relic from, from uh, ancestors that were living in colder climates. Right, because I thought of maybe, like, you know, protection from the sun, but they're in these dense jungles, so... It, or maybe protection from the wet. But like you said, if it's not that thick, it's probably not doing either of those. It's more just remnants. Um, but yeah, and I've been very lucky in my uh, my lifetime. I was actually able to meet a Sumatran rhino named Harapin. Are you familiar with Harapin? I know Harapin, yes. Uh, so, and he was, he was hairier probably because he was living under human care at the wildlife um conservation center where I was able to meet him. And yeah, I mean, of course I fell in love and then became a lot more educated about what was happening uh, with the Sumatran and or Java and Asian rhinos in general, uh, all through Harry. And so uh, it was very basically uplifting and interesting experience for me because he's just so darn cute. I mean, if you don't love him, something, something's, <laughs> something's wrong inside because he was very sweet, but Correct me if I'm wrong. He since then has traveled to Sumatra to uh, breed yes. females that are living in the wild, right? They, they, there was a few Sumatran rhinos living in the United States, right? But now they're no longer there. They've Absolutely. So, so Harapan's brother, Andalus, uh, was the first Sumatran rhino born in captivity for over 112 years. Um, and wow, he was born in, wow, I didn't realize yeah, that. And, and he was born in Cincinnati Zoo and Botanical Gardens. And, and they really have led the charge in figuring out how to breed Sumatran rhinos, uh, under human care. Um, and because of their, 
diligent research and, and expertise, we now know how to breed uh, rhinos uh, in conservation breeding programs. So yeah, Andalus, 112 years um, was, is a pretty long time. Uh, his brother, Harapan, uh, was born in 2007. Uh, Harapan actually means hope in Indonesian, uh, which I think is, is a very apt uh, name for him. Mm -hmm. um, so both Andalas and Harapan were sent uh, back to Indonesia, uh, and they now reside in the Sumatran Rhino Sanctuary, uh, which is uh, an amazing facility. Um, one of the conservation wonders of the world is how I like to, to phrase it. Um, it's it's run so by you've the... been you you've been to this wonder of the world. Yeah, I've been there a few times, and it, it really is an incredible facility. Um, it's awesome. it's in the middle of a, a national park, um, so it's all in natural forest, um, and the enclosures are all fenced within natural forest. So the although the animals are in human care, they're also kind of living in a semi wild um, right doing their own state. Things. Yes. Um, so the the Smartson Rhino Sanctuary is, is run by Yari, the Indonesian Rhino Foundation, in partnership with the International Rhino Foundation. Um, and like I say, it's an absolutely world class facility. They have seven rhinos there now. Um, and they've actually had two calves of their own uh, in the in the last few years. Um, so in 2012, um, they had a male calf um, and they've had a, a female calf uh, recently in the, in the last couple of years. Um, yeah, I read it was in 2016. So that's correct. Yeah. Um, Very, so I mean, that's super exciting. Yes. And, and it, it shows that when we have a facility that is set up in the right way, uh, with, uh, organizations that are absolutely dedicated to the care and breeding of the species and with the international support of places like Cincinnati that we, we can run successful conservation breeding programs, uh, for species such as the Sumatran rhino. So it, it really does give us hope for the future of the species. So Harapan is, uh, adequately named then? Absolutely. Oh, that's so awesome. And, I'll, I'll put some, um, some links on the show notes too for listeners. If you want to check out more about Harapin's journey, it was, uh, Cincinnati Zoo and Biological Gardens does incredible work. Uh, we've interviewed Dr. Aaron Curry from that institution as well as Christina Gorsh about hippos. So they've been great working with us and they do obviously amazing, amazing work and they chronicled his journey and him moving to his, his new home to do really great things to help save his species. So we look forward to hearing more things about him. And I think uh, there's even some, some websites where you can follow more about this journey. And I'll definitely put some information out about the rhino sanctuary as well. But now, Barney, how did you, what was your, besides going to this amazing, now you, you really make me want to go. You're calling it like a world wonder, this rhino sanctuary. I, I, I I want to get on a plane tomorrow and go, but uh, that wasn't your first exposure with Sumatran rhinos. What, what was your first exposure with them and how did that help shape you to want to learn more about them? Sure. So going back to, to when I was a, a kid trying to break into to conservation, um, that first trip that I took to Indonesia when I was 18, um, it was there primarily to, to work on, on primates. Um, but one of the things that sparked my interest when I realized I was actually going to be able to, to go to Sumatra was, was the rhinos. Um, and like all like naive young biologists, my dream was to see a Sumatran rhino. Um, to this day, I've still not seen a Sumatran rhino in the wild. Um, but I don't think you're alone, buddy. I don't think you're alone. I know. I, think that's right. I know. I've been very, very lucky in seeing the other four species, but Sumatrans. So, oh, see, um, I haven't even done me. that. I was, I was at a rhino relocation in uh, northern Zambia, relocating um, black rhinos there, and yeah, no, we went out for three days in a row. And but it, it's actually good that we didn't see them. That meant, meant that they were learning how to to go out and find their own areas and not be around people. So it's like a good and bad thing, right? Yeah, like if they're absolutely. Easily, if they're easily found, that means that it's easy for poachers to find them. But if they're hard to find for even biologists uh, or conservationists, then that's probably a good thing. But, uh, but hopefully with their numbers improving, potentially you'll have your, 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 um, your dream is not lost yet. Yes. One day, one day. Um, 
so yeah so so when i went there my, my dream was to see one um unfortunately what happened was i ended up finding a poached carcass um of one um oh. it was just bones by the time that i found it um but it was this shocking scene of um the bones in this area of completely flattened vegetation where it obviously struggled for a significant amount of time. Um, the wire was still on one of the bones and the, the tree that the wire snare was attached to was, was still there. And you could really see the, you could picture the struggle that the animal had been through. So just from a, an individual animal point of view, it was kind of shocking, but just uh, to know that, um, that kind of action was driving to the extinction of the species. And actually the, the species is no longer found in, in the park where I was working. Um, so that, that was really a, a turning point in my career, actually, because I, I really wanted to be a, a research scientist until that moment. And, and seeing that rhino, uh, the set of bones of that rhino in the, the way that I saw it, um, actually changed my career path from, from one of science and understanding to one of conservation action. Um, so I, I often look back on that, that moment and wonder how do we make the rest of the world have that kind of moment for the Sumatran rhino? Um, I kind of feel very lucky that I had that moment mm -hmm. and, and I'm now in a position to be able to do something I hope to help the species. Um, but we need the rest of the world to, to wake up and have that same moment, not just for Sumatran rhinos, but the whole planet and the, the state of our world that we live in. But um, yeah, as I say, we're now down to less than 80 of these animals and it's uh, the world is not doing enough to stop that extinction. Yes, I agree wholeheartedly. And I mean, you talked about, like you said, 20 or so years ago, the main pressures were poachers, right? So they would, put snares down and, and that like the animals get their legs trapped and then they can't move. Yes. Or was it for, or is it for wildlife like bushmeat or both? No, rhinos have always been uh, targeted for their, their horns for the traditional Asian medicine. Um, and Asian rhino horns have always been more valuable than African rhino horns. So Sumatran rhinos again, live throughout Southeast Asia um, and demand and hunting has been going on for two, 3,000 years. So this is not a new thing. Um, it was probably relatively sustainable uh, a few hundred years ago when the only a very select few people could afford rhino horn. Mm -hmm. um, and there was rhinos in a, a lot of places. Um, there's actually reports of rhinos uh, in the area that is now downtown Bangkok in just a, uh, a couple of hundred years ago. So it really has been in the last two, three hundred years where, where rhinos across Asia have contracted their distribution very dramatically. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's partly due to deforestation, but, but also due to an increased, uh, ability to catch because of new technologies such as wire snares and guns. Um, but also because of the, the opening trade routes and all kinds of stuff. But, um, so rhinos have a very long history of, of being targeted for poaching, which as they say goes back thousands of years. Um, uh, and poaching to this very day remains a hugely, uh, important threat that we, we need to be aware of, um, on a day by day basis, even though, the species is primarily focused these days by these small populations. Any single individual loss is a huge problem for the sure, species. Ab absolutely. And since you are an expert in Asian wildlife and have spent a lot of time over there dealing with uh, conservation issues, and I know one of your big focus at Global uh, Wildlife Conservation is uh, poaching and trying to deal with programs to help minimize that. And I'm sure... Anybody listening to this podcast, I'm sure is very familiar with the, you know, the scientific fact that rhino horn is made of keratin, the same thing as your fingernails. So there is not one ounce of scientific evidence that it does anything medically 
to improve a person's well-being, health. Horn is not a medicine. It's a myth. It's been, obviously, it's, it's cultural in a lot of Asian communities, but there's no scientific evidence to back it up, which to me is even more, I guess, infuriating because it's like the same as chewing on your fingernails. I don't think everybody, nobody would do that to cure a cold or to increase their libido or whatever it is. And it's literally the same protein. So my question to you after, sorry, I had to get out of my soapbox just, just for a moment there. My question to you is with this growing middle class in Asia, Southeast Asia, Vietnam, uh, and China, all, we all have technology, right? A lot of people, most, this growing middle class, most have technology, the ability to look things up or learn things. So is the younger generation, do you see any strides in educating the younger generation that rhino horn is not medicine and that these animals aren't going to be around in the next 20 to 50 years, 10 years, if, if this poaching keeps up? Well, firstly, addressing that demand is going to be a multi-generational um, task and the Sumatran rhinos don't have time for us to address mm -hmm. that. So that is not necessarily a solution to saving this species from extinction. Um, yes, it's something we need to address long term for lots of other species, um, including obviously the African rhinos, um, but that will never be done in enough time to save this species. Um, and like I say, there's, there's this bigger issue of, of small population biology when it comes to Sumatran rhinos. Um, but on the genetics, yeah, on the demand side of things, it, it's, it's difficult because, because I, I listened to you talk about there's no scientific proof, but in, in Asian culture, scientific proof is not necessarily as powerful as traditional knowledge. Um, so, you know, it, it's it's a very difficult thing as as a Westerner looking in to understand that mindset um, where you've got the mm -hmm. you know the different pillars of of traditional medicines. Um, it's it goes back a lot longer than Western civilization has been around. Um, sure, and and that's how we all develop from storytelling, right? That's that's how. We evolve from our ancestors telling us stories of where to find food and what seasons to hunt in and how, how to build fire and all of that. And so it is, it is ingrained in basically our DNA to, to look to each other for, for knowledge. And in fact, I know that one of the most powerful things in consumerism, which is why social media is such a big, big, uh, target for advertisers, advertisers, is if your friend says this product, like if your good friend says this product is really good, I like this product. That means more to the person than anybody, than any advertiser, any any um, scientist saying you should use this product. We trust people around us to, about their opinions and about what they've experienced. And that's just, that's human nature. We wouldn't have evolved as far as we have if we didn't have that. So I do understand definitely what you're saying. Uh, but with that, so with that being said, do you think that, that it could ever not be seen as a traditional medicine or is that probably? Well, I think the, the, the thing to do is not necessarily debunk traditional medicine. It's to look at okay. alternatives to, to what could be out there. Um, and don't, come in in a Western stroke imperialistic point of view and say traditional medicine has no scientific basis, but to say, um, you know, there's certain parts of the natural world that you don't need to use because there are alternatives. Um, so rhino horn traditionally has been used to reduce fever. Um, okay. And so there's, there's lots of alternatives to that in traditional medicine. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Lots of the demand for rhino horn these days is actually not traditional medicine. It's it's being seen much more as a status symbol. Um, and as you say, it's one person says it cures a hangover, so the next person thinks it cures a hangover. So it's not necessarily being driven by traditional medicine uses these days. Okay. It's being driven by new fads and, and a status symbol it being the because it's expensive and because it's illegal, it is 
something that that people are willing to use to to show off effectively. Sure. Um, so it's not necessarily a traditional medicine issue, even though it has grown out of that. Um, ah, there's certainly more than enough alternatives um, as a fever reducer within traditional medicine. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's it's extremely complicated. Um, there's much better experts out there on the demand reduction side of things than than myself. Um, but it's uh, it's definitely a topic of conversation for the next generation and the current uh, young generation. Um, and it will probably, I do think it will change, but I think it will be um, probably, you know, it, it's a, it's a decade long process. Sure. Um, and, you know, even if we are successful with rhino horns and shark fins, this generation, it might be next generation that, that um, weans itself off things like pangolins and the next generation that, that ends up just being, happy using herbs and, and barks and things like that. So I think there's there's a lot of work to be done on that. Um, unfortunately, lots of the species that are being impacted right now just don't have the time for demand reduction efforts to uh, set in because, like I say, it's going to be uh, generations before demands are completely removed. Gotcha. Well, and, and yes, I think that is the best way to look at it as far as short-term species survival goals, which the Sumatran rhinos are in, the Javan rhinos are in. If they don't survive in the next 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, it, they're done. Whereas other big complex issues such as poaching, uh, wildlife, uh, desire to have bushmeat, things like that, those are, like you said, more, more multi-generational, longer-term and it's going to take a lot more open-mindedness and just uh, uh, in general kind of uh, many different strategies to employ. Um, but with that being said, with the Sumatran rhino, what has worked in the past to help increase their numbers? And then what are the goals in the, in the future or current strategies of conservationists to help the Sumatran rhino? So probably the biggest success we've had in Sumatran rhino conservation in the last 20 years has been this uh, learning uh, and ability now to be able to breed the animals in captivity. Um, that really has been a huge breakthrough. And I say that primarily because even though we've been doing some very good work in the forests of Sumatra, mm -hmm. Uh, and Borneo and even Malaysia and Thailand before that, all the, the anti-poaching work and the protection work that's gone on has probably slowed the decline, but it hasn't prevented the decline. So okay. we do know how to do very strong anti-poaching patrols. And, and as far as we're... Which is good. Yeah, I mean, as far as we're yeah. aware, in some of the parks, there has been no poaching of Sumatran rhinos um, for, for many, many years. At the same time, their numbers seem to have still decreased. Um, so that tells us one of two things. Either there was poaching going on that we didn't know about, which is highly possible because these animals live in mm -hmm. dense rainforests in, in mountainous terrain. So it's, it's hard to cover the area entirely. So poaching could have been happening. Um, but probably more likely is the numbers were always so small that even with effective protection, the populations were just slowly decreasing um, and we weren't monitoring the animals closely enough um, to understand that until it was too late and now we've got such small populations that leaving them in the forest uh, in their current situation is now actually no longer a viable option. And so moving forward what are what are some of the strategies then? Yeah, so moving forward, so there's there's two locations where we believe the populations might still be mm -hmm. strong enough to warrant leaving them in the forest and focusing on current protection mechanisms and, and strengthening those protection mechanisms and, and definitely strengthening monitoring mechanisms so we can get a much better handle on population change over time. Um, but for all the other populations, they really don't have a future in the wild. And, and I say that as someone who 
is very much a field conservationist and does not want to see animals mm-hmm. brought into captivity. But as we've explained already, these these small populations just literally are not breeding and they have no opportunity to breed. And even if they were to have the occasional calf, that's not enough to keep these populations alive. So, um, so on, uh, we, we're just about to launch a, a new alliance to try and change the trajectory of Sumatran rhino conservation. Um, so what we plan to do is to capture all of the rhinos, uh, that are outside of these two core areas and bring them into captivity so that we can establish a single breeding program in Indonesia. Um, as I say, we now know how to breed the animals. We've got proven success both in Cincinnati and with the Sumatran rhino sanctuary. Um, so unfortunately, there really is no other choice. Um, so a coalition of organizations coordinated by the IUCN Species Survival Commission um, and this coalition includes uh, the International Rhino Foundation, uh, World Wildlife Fund, uh, and uh, Global Wildlife Conservation, as well as National Geographic. And we are pulling all of our resources to launch a global awareness raising and fundraising campaign awesome. for this new initiative. That's exciting. Uh, we're launching that uh, on the... Yep, we're launching that on the 20th of September um, and uh, just in time for World Rhino Day, which is uh, September the 22nd. Um, So this has been about a year in development um, and is really the last ditch attempt to save this species from extinction. Um, we've been working very, very closely with Indonesian colleagues. The Ministry of Environment and Forestry is, is fully behind this project. Um, and we are working with implementing partners in Indonesia, local uh, conservation groups there, including the Indonesian Rhino Foundation, WWF Indonesia, and uh, Foreign Conservancy Lusa, um, as well as a whole array of uh, other local NGOs, universities, government research institutions, etc. Um, so between uh, all of these groups, we have developed a detailed plan and budget for the next five years. Um, as I say, we have government permissions. In fact, this work is directly uh, supporting the government of Indonesia's emergency action plan on the species, which calls for establishing a national conservation breeding program. Um, so that's in effect what we are going to be doing is supporting the, the government of Indonesia to establish this national conservation breeding program. So we will build uh, two new breeding centers in addition to expanding the current Sumatran rhino sanctuary. Uh, and we will rescue all of the rhinos um, that we can find and bring them into these uh, conservation breeding centers. And then we will manage the population of rhinos within those three centers as a single meta population. And we will uh, run a conservation breeding program for the rhinos and try and very simply get as many babies as we can out of that uh, population as, as is feasible in a short period Amazing. of time. That is just a wonderful and important critical collaboration of, I won't go through all the uh, collaborators again, but what a team of conservationists, zoological institutions, universities, researchers, scientists, uh, the local government, uh, as you said, that are really, there's a lot of people that are fighting the good fight for the Sumatran rhino, which I'm sure I know it must give you a lot of hope. It does. Um, you know, in all the time I've been working on Sumatran rhinos, we've always been talking about how do we stop the decline. And now we're talking about how do we get as many babies on the ground as possible, um, which admittedly is the same conversation, um, but it's phrased in a very different way. And it's, it is much more optimistic and it is much more um, about numbers going up rather than numbers going down. So uh, I do feel very optimistic about this. Obviously, it's a huge undertaking. Um, just finding these rhinos is mm-hmm. going to be challenging, let alone 
capturing them, let alone moving them to breeding centers, uh, let alone getting the breeding centers really operational and, and uh, getting them up to the, the same level of standard as, as we have in the current Sumatran rhino sanctuary. Um, there's going to be many, many challenges along the way. Um, but I believe with the support of the Indonesian government, the local partners and the international community, this is something that, that can definitely be achieved. Awesome. Absolutely. And now how, I, of course, I'll put a link on, on the show notes, but how can listeners find out more about this amazing collaboration? What's it called and, and how could they Google search for them? if they don't want to go to my show notes. Yeah, so we're, we're launching a website uh, that will uh, explain everything that's happening. Uh, so that's called Sumatran Rhino Recovery. Um, so please check that out. Um, uh, but you could also go to any of the individual um, members of the Sumatran Rhino uh, Recovery Alliance, uh, and they'll all have uh, details on their websites as well. Um, so yeah, please check us out. Um, there's going to be, uh, on the, the Alliance website, there will be, uh, ideas on how you can help. Um, one of them is really just tell everyone that this species exists, um, and that it needs help. Uh, because as we talked a lot about in the Sala <laughs> article, one of the, the big issues we have with Sumatran rhinos is, is, no one really knows they exist. And, and as we said at the beginning of this conversation, when, when people think about rhinos, they think of the, the two African species. Um, sure. And we really need people to understand that there is this rhino that is literally on the brink of extinction. Um, and by that, we mean literally on the yeah. brink. Um, when you say 80 animals and then you start dividing that by how many females there are and how many breeding females of breeding age there are, you start getting down to a very, very small effective population size. Um, so don't think 80 animals. Think more like 20 breeding females. That's the kind of level that we're at. Um, so we we really do need support um, from the whole world. Um, what's really interesting is, is having National Geographic as part of this coalition has been uh, really fantastic because obviously they are so good at telling stories and, and, uh, getting the word out. So mm -hmm. it's, it's going to be fascinating watching the, the power of a global media brand getting behind the conservation of a species. Sure. Um, so I think that's really going to help raise the awareness, but, but every little thing helps. So, so if every listener here can, can tell five of their friends today about um, the plight of the Sumatran rhinos, you, you've got no idea where those conversations will lead. Absolutely. And, and if you haven't seen one too, we'll put some videos up on the show notes or obviously you can just Google it and find amazing videos. Uh, and you'll fall in love with the Sumatra rhino. It is the, by, uh, in my opinion, hands down, it's definitely the most charming of the five species of rhinos and it's, it's unique and it has hair and it's, it's, it's smaller. So that alone makes you make it stand out. And then when you find out, yes, that there's maybe 20 breeding females left. Uh, po possibly a population of 80 that, you know, that should make alarm bells go off. And obviously if you can't afford to do anything about it, like Barney said, telling five people, there's probably somebody in there that can maybe donate or, or then, or five more people will tell five more people. So we'll tell five more people that within those, I can't do math that fast within that, within those 25 or 30 people, somebody can donate a dollar, right. Or more. And, and this is what we need to do for these critically, critically endangered animals. And we know for listeners that uh, are unfamiliar with this podcast, we've told a lot of stories about animals, uh, the California condor, the black-footed ferret, animals that were in similar situations as the Sumatran rhino that were brought into captivity, bred under human care, got the numbers stable, got more breeding females, figured out a lot more about their reproduction, their nutrition, their biology, et cetera. And then we're released back into the wild with a lot when, when it was secure years later when there had been more education to make sure that they weren't harmed or overhunted or killed in the wild. And so that is a very real possibility in years to come. But first, we have to actually save the Sumatran rhino from extinction. And it's critical. And all these groups, uh, Barney's group, Global Wildlife Conservation, International Rhino Foundation, that's called, um, also known as IRF, World Wildlife Fund, everybody's heard of that, 
um, National Geographic, everybody's heard of that, the Rhino Sanctuary um, over in Indonesia. Uh, we'll put some links to their uh, website on our show notes. Please check them out on Facebook. Um, there's, a, I think there's a big movement called Hashtag Team Rhino on the uh, the old Twitter. Uh, so I don't know what Instagram is. Maybe it's the same. I don't do Instagram. But definitely check that out. And all these all these different groups are going to be promoting uh, World Rhino Day on Saturday, September 22nd. And then, and so to all the listeners out there, tell five friends about it. Tell them to tell five more friends about it. And please, please check out the Sumatran Rhino Rescue. And if you can't remember that because you're driving, you can definitely remember uh, the International Rhino Foundation, National Geographic, World Wildlife Fund, or uh, Barney's group, the Global Wildlife Conservation, the Sumatran Rhino Sanctuary. All these groups independently have come together to work together to help save the Sumatran Rhino. So please check them out uh, and learn more about World Rhino Day. And a lot of that has to do with education, telling people about what's happening. And there's, of course, going to be this big highlight on the Sumatran rhino crisis and the Sumatran rhino rescue that will be happening to help save these guys from extinction. Thank you very much, Barney. I really appreciate your time and your energy and your passion. And I always learn so much when I talk to you. Uh, And so I I guess I have uh, really only one very important question. Do you know if this Sumatran Rhino Rescue Group is hiring uh, recent PhD graduates? Um, if they speak fluent uh, Bahasa Indonesia and have Indonesian uh, uh, nationality, then yes. <laughs> okay, so I better stick to my day job, which means whether you like it or not, I'm going to have to keep interviewing you since that's the language that I speak. And I... Even with talking to you, I learned how to pronounce Saula and how did I do with Sumatran? Do I, do I have That's that? That's pretty good. Okay yes. Okay. Okay. Um, well, it's just always a pleasure and your knowledge is just impeccable and uh, I'm always inspired. You're definitely a conservation hero of mine. So, and I'm sure all of our audience appreciates the work you do as well as do the Sumatran rhinos and Perhaps a few years from now, we can have this conversation again, and there'll be even more hope of more babies. I think I, it should be hashtag Team Rhino, but it should also be hashtag more rhino babies. <laughs> <laughs> that is the goal. And so hopefully we'll be able to be celebrating that in, in, in years to come because of all the amazing efforts these groups are doing. So thank you, friend. I appreciate your time. And... Um, Happy World Rhino Day and uh, long live the Sumatran Rhino. Let's let's save this let's save this animal from extinction. <laughs> <laughs>